Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. A few years ago, a poster on Reddit worked out what he claimed was the longest connected walking distance on Google Maps without having to cross an ocean. Longest distance, walking distance, con that's connected without having to cross an ocean. The route goes from Cape Town, South Africa to Magadan, Russia in northeastern Siberia, and it's 13,910 miles long. Walking for eight hours a day through some of the most dangerous places in the world, it would take you about 562 days without any day of rest. It crosses 16 countries, it ascends 117,693 meters, and descends 117,686 meters, uh, which is the equivalent of about 13 Mount Everests. While this trek is popular with people who dream about doing such things, no one has ever tried it yet, and no one would likely even survive the attempt. The risk is just too great. It's littered with visa restrictions, war-torn regions, civil wars, unstable governments, unfriendly wildlife, disease, and brutal weather extremes. But if you wanted to, Google can show you the way. I wonder if you could buy travel insurance for a trip like that. You've probably bought it before, right? Travel insurance, if you're going on an extended vacation or for an extended distance, it can be a good thing if you want your airfare and your luggage covered. But what if you needed much more? Look where that goes. Theirs is a little rounder than that, but that's... <laughs> Zimbabwe is home to one of the world's deadliest snakes, the black mamba. Uganda has the highest number of recorded cases of malaria in the entire world. South Sudan is one of the most dangerous countries in the world, plagued with armed robberies and assaults and kidnappings. Syria is facing civil war, and it just gets much worse from there. So what if you needed travel insurance that would rescue you if your plans were just that stupid? I got a guy. You need to be a member of Global Rescue. They offer worldwide field rescue in remote and dangerous environments. Their deployable teams are standing by to rescue their members from the point of illness or injury in any medical emergency. Their teams of military special op veterans are available to provide advisory, consultation, and evacuation services for events like natural disasters, terror attacks, or even civil unrest when you're in danger. According to customer testimonials on their website, they rescued one member by helicopter when he found himself suffering from frostbite in the Himalayan mountains and was unable to make the descent to camp. And another was flown out of Zimbabwe by jet to a tier one medical trauma center in Johannesburg after a near-death life-experiencing run-in with an angry Cape buffalo. I know you have an African safari on your bucket list, but before you go, watch this. So here we are in a 100,000-acre hunting area in the middle of nowhere. And all of a sudden, we hear this loud sound, and everybody took off running different directions. This animal comes charging out. It's a Cape buffalo gored me in, in my flank and threw me. This whole thing happened in four seconds. My name is Angela Heaster. I'm a mom with three daughters and one wonderful granddaughter. I was in Zimbabwe with my husband. I was having a blast. It was incredibly wonderful. Who would have thought this was gonna happen? 
Global Rescue brought a medical jet in from Harare and they flew me to a tier one trauma center in Johannesburg, South Africa. The surgeon told me later that he could see the bottom of my lungs, he could see my bowels, and there was a hole he said he could put his hand and his arm through where I had been gored. I do think the decisions that Global Rescue made helped save my life. They knew what I was gonna need, and, and as I progressed and recovered, where I would be and what I would be able to do, and that was exactly the right decisions. set up regular conference calls with my daughter who was here and you know put a, a structure in place for, for communication so that everybody would know what the status was keeping everybody updated now I'm doing fantastic So, pretty cool, right? Who knew it was out there? So you submit your, uh, your travel plans, how many people are going, and they submit your back uh, a price. But, uh, you know, if there's like a big earthquake and you're standing out in your backyard looking at the rubble and, and here comes a helicopter two doors down and sucks your neighbor up to safety and you don't get there, they were members. <laughs> <laughs> and you weren't. Check out their website. Lots of more testimonials. Um, pretty awesome stuff. I mean, I can't imagine uh, anything better than having a special ops team come in and rescue me from vacation, my vacation boredom. <laughs> now, so, if you're an extreme sports world adventure type like myself, okay, just kidding, uh, or even if you're not, these guys might be good to know. Uh, Global Rescue, uh, you can check it out. Uh, they'll get you out, they'll get you help, and they'll get you back. Uh, and yes, there's an app for that. So the young man sitting with pigs in our gospel lesson this morning could have used an app like that to get out of the mess he'd gotten himself in. He needed physical rescue, he needed spiritual help, he needed reconciliation. But sometimes, sometimes it seems like the longest road in the world is the road back home. If you were asked to boil the Bible down to just one word, what would it be? Love? Grace? Mercy? Jesus? They're all good choices, and they're repeated in Scripture over and over again. But what about reconciliation, getting right with God? Reconciliation encompasses all those things, and it often leads to getting right with others as a bonus. It's a cure for sin-sick people stuck in this endless loop of sin. Paul makes the statement that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, he says. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation and trusting the message of reconciliation to us. On behalf of Christ, he says, be reconciled to God. Christ died for us. He took on himself the punishment for all our sins, carried them to the cross where they were nailed there right along with him. And then they were covered with his own shed blood. In Christ and for his sake, God will forgive and restore a repentant sinner back into a life-saving relationship with himself. Calvary's cross bridged a huge gap that sin had created, worming its way into our life and, and separating us from God, whose forgiveness is the ultimate and only cure for that seemingly endless loop. 
Reconciliation is at the very heart of the Christian faith, the reconciliation of people to God and people to one another. That's the point Paul drives home through simplicity and repetition in a way that he wants it to get stuck in our heads forever. So we get so excited about it that we spread that message everywhere we go. God has worked through his son to repair not just a strained relationship, but a broken one, a relationship broken by sin. And that's good news that that the world so badly in need of the unity and mercy and, and love and grace of God needs to hear. One we couldn't even imagine apart from knowing Christ. What Paul spells out in all this repetitive language, though Jesus offers, is a whole kind of a scrapbook of word pictures. In a story of reconciliation, he tells in our gospel lesson today, one that would have left his listeners, in this case the Pharisees and, and scribes, the church leaders of his days, uh, simply mortified. These church officials have been very critical of Jesus' association with people they considered sinners, people who were unworthy of God's grace because of their poor ability they did, uh, poor job they did adhering to, to the uh, law of God, at least according to their own high version, high standards of that law, which has uh, set up a pretty high bar for people. Now the story begins with a son facing his father with his hand out, demanding, not asking, that he gets his share of the inheritance right now, up front. Well, a son making demands of his father maybe wouldn't uh, barely raise an eyebrow these days. It was particularly shocking for the culture of the first century. Jewish law did dictate that when the father passed away, the eldest son would get two-thirds of the estate, um, what was known as a double portion. It was a double portion because the second eldest son would get one-third. Uh, now, the problem uh, was his dad was alive and well. <laughs> And so the son's committing a huge social blunder. It was like you were saying, you know, Pop, I wish you were already dead. I forget the family business. Forget the farm. You know, heck, forget the family. I'm out of here. You know, where's my dough? I'm entitled. Well, he wasn't really. There were a couple uh, exceptions to the death clause. For example, if the son was getting married, but that wasn't the case here. So the younger son's demands are rude, and they're disrespectful, and they're rebellious, and they're foolish, and he's totally disregarding the commandment to honor your parents. This was in a culture where family and community often took precedent over the individual. So these days, you know, when these were the days when health care meant whatever the family could provide. Uh, retirement home was where you grew up and where you raised your family. And your golden years, your kids became your caregivers. You know, to break out of that culture would, it would have surely caught the attention of Jesus' listeners. This boy would have been lumped in with the tax collectors and sinners that they were accusing Jesus of befriending all the time. It was such a serious issue that the law of Moses actually allowed that a rebellious son could be stoned <laughs> legally. That never came to any of your minds, I'm sure. You've got kids. I can't imagine that happened very often back then either. But, you know, Jewish boys just didn't talk to their fathers like that. And those um, who were hearing Jesus tell this parable surely expected that, that the boy's punishment would be swift. But that isn't what happens. Now turn the page in this family album, and the next picture shows the boy in a foreign country, living high on the hog, which turns out to be kind of an ironic turn of phrase. Jesus told his listeners that eventually he squandered everything, from a Greek word that also translates scattered, which is pretty much saying it all, the way he was throwing his money around. But his wild and undisciplined lifestyle was only going to last as long as his funds. The word prodigal refers to a reckless spender, and that's what he was. And so before long, he's flat broke. And then the economy crashes as a result of a famine in that land. And, 
and he's forced to hire himself out to a Gentile pig farmer, which is about as un-Jewish as you could get. Pigs were considered unclean. They were forbidden as food, uh, an abomination to the Jews, and those who cared for them were even considered worse. So turn the, the page again, and, and Jesus shows them a snapshot, word snapshot this time, of a young Jewish rebel sitting hungry and broke in the mud and the, and the, the pig goo and the, the pig dew. And, and he's, he's so hungry, he wishes that he could, he could eat the, the, the pods, the carob pods that he's feeding his charge. His glory days are fast becoming a distant memory. His, his present is bleak, and his future, his future looks hopeless. Now, at this point of the story, because Jesus is telling you, you expect something miraculous to happen, right? The sudden appearance of a bright light, maybe, or even an angel of God as the boy is suddenly filled with faith. That's not what this parable is about. He'd forsaken his father and his brother. He'd walked away. Uh, and now he feels forsaken by God and man. He's found out that the world really has nothing to provide but empty promises. No food, no help. But sometimes no help from God is exactly what we need. Right? No angel appears, but the story does take a turn. The boy suddenly sits up in the mud and begins to realize what he walked away from. The pigsty becomes a place of revelation. He came to himself, is the way Jesus says it, remembering that he had another past, one that included a home and a family. There's no future in pig tending for him, not even survival, and so his initial decision to return home is probably a little more practical than penitential. He was recalling how the servants on his father's farm were way better off than he was now. And sure, he'll have to do a mea culpa. He'll have to uh, admit that he made a big mistake. And, you know, even, even if his father only hired him on as one of the workers, his highest expectation, at least he'd have a full belly again. Now, the next picture is unforgettable. It's a snapshot of the father hiking up his robes and racing down the street to, to meet his son who's coming in the distance. Surprisingly, he embraces his long-lost sinner son and calls for a major league party to be thrown in his honor. It's an unmistakable reminder of God's unconditional love for wanderers, wanderers just like us. One of the most interesting things about this whole story is that Jesus' audience would immediately have, have picked the father as the biggest failure in the story, not the prodigal son for, for which it's become so well known. The father would have, a good father would have squashed a, such a rebellion in a child quickly, without question, severely. He would never have given him the inheritance in the first place. And then later, after the insolent boy works up the nerve, albeit out of desperation, to dare even show his face around the, the family homestead again, this father disgraces himself by running, running out to meet him when he's still far away. And not only that, but he actually forgives the boy and restores his status as son even after the boy had disowned himself from the family. Where was the rebuke, they must have been wondering. Where was the punishment? And there was one guy wondering, where were the stones? <laughs> this dad was a real failure. Uh, that's for sure. Even the older son thinks so. He can't believe his father is doing such an atrocious thing for a stupid failure of a kid brother that they never expected to see again. And he's so mad, he refuses to attend the party. And when his dad comes out to reason with him, he gives the old man a real tongue lashing, reminding him how he's been such a loyal son all this time and has nothing to show for it. Well, except for his two-thirds inheritance and everything else, as his father points out. But like the Pharisees listening intently to this, this boy wants justice. He wants retribution, not reconciliation. And all his father can say is, what else could we do? 
For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Turns out big brother isn't so perfect himself. A point not lost on the high and mighty churchmen there that day listening. Reconciliation. A father reconciled with his son in the parable by grace alone. Okay, Forgiveness and a new future undeserved, but offered freely without reservation. Just like the grace shown to us that made us what Paul calls ambassadors for Christ. Both lessons are really about the heart of God. They answer that age-old question, what is God like? And we're shown a God who loves us enough to let us go, but at the same time longs to be reunited with us every moment we're gone. Who's even given us an owner's manual for our lives in the, in, in the Bible, in his word, to help us get it right. Now, they're really a portrait of a God who loves us, a God who cares for us, loves us to death, and proved it by sending his son to, to die on a cross to take away all our sins. The prodigal son uh, abused that love, that freedom, and he almost lost his life over it. But when he returned home, his father welcomed him back unconditionally. That's the greatest part of this story. He never got an opportunity to recite his whole rehearsed apology before his father began ordering the servants around. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let's eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. No matter what far country we might flee to in order to leave God behind and take our own walk in the wilderness, he'll never be far enough or for long enough that we can never return or never be rescued and restored. That's the unconditional part of how he loves us, so far beyond what we deserve. Lent reminds us, this season of Lent, that the story of Jesus' life on earth inevitably led him toward the cross. Now that was the ultimate first century picture of failure and disgrace, crucifixion. Jesus' willingness to, to risk the embarrassment of being stripped and beaten and tortured and crucified, held up as a failure for the whole world to see on Good Friday, reminds us that God's ways aren't always our ways. We'd have never come up with a plan that relied on the appearance of failure to save the whole world, one in which his son's own son's death would become our ultimate victory over sin, death, and the devil. As Paul would later put it, the cross was and is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, it is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. It's in 1 Corinthians. Now the Father still loves us enough to let us go, loved us enough to allow his own son to look foolish in the blinded eyes of the first century uh, Jewish and Roman leaders, and even to our own 21st century reason. We're free to choose our own paths, but the Father patiently waits for us to return. His foot in the very door we tried to slam shut behind us when we left. He loves us too much to just force his way into our lives, but we have his word that while earthly fathers may be tempted to kill the prodigal son when he returns, our heavenly father kills the fatted calf. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. We'll take a moment now to uh, receive your gifts, your tithes, and your offerings.